You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. With that, please join me again this morning in the book of James. We'll continue our study there. This morning we're going to be in James chapter 3, spending our time in verses 13 through 18. And as we've learned over the last few weeks, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing this letter to early Christians who had been scattered all across the land in Judea and Samaria because of this persecution that they were facing and, the, and that were, was being enacted against them, prompted by the very violent and, and tragic death of an early follower of Jesus by the name of Stephen. And so this persecution had, had scattered them all over the place, and, and these early Christians were arriving in these different lands, and they were, they were setting up churches and setting up their lives, and James was beginning to hear about some trials and suffering that these early Christians were having, and he wanted to write them a letter to encourage them, to tell them about the ways in which their faith should and could and would be visible in their lives. And so this book is full, as, you, as we've seen, full of practical wisdom about those ways that faith can be visible. What they believed was visible in their lives, and James wanted to encourage them by pointing out the ways in which their behavior was pointing to what they really trusted. He wanted them to know for sure, not just in their heads, not just intellectually, but know for sure because they could see it, that the living work of Jesus Christ was alive and active among them. And as we'll see today, the conduct of their lives was not marked by evidence of God's grace and mercy, but by selfish desire and jealousy. So turn with me now to James chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 13. Through verse 18, James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. God, I know that you have a word for us in this text this morning. Would you forgive the one who preaches for his sins are many? And may we see Jesus and him only. Amen. Who is the wisest person you know? I have a hunch 
that over the last year or so, there have been moments where you have wished that you could find that wise person to help you navigate the confusion and chaos of the last year. I bet there was some circumstance where, where you wished someone wiser than you could help you discern what choice you were meant to make. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, and you're looking for someone to give you wisdom about, about that next job or, or your marriage or maybe you're graduating soon. Maybe you're parenting for the first time. Maybe you're caring for parents. I don't know what the circumstances are, but maybe you're looking for that wisdom. Who might you look toward to provide that wisdom? And maybe the better question is, how would you know for sure whether or not that person was actually wise versus just clever and knowledgeable? One can't have wisdom without knowledge, but one can have knowledge without wisdom. How can we tell the difference between godly wisdom and earthly wisdom? I've received some pretty bad advice in my life. It sounded really good at the time. I've given some pretty bad advice too. The worst advice that I give is advice about directions. Okay, I need to warn you about something. If you ask me for directions somewhere, I am going to look at you and I'm going to tell you some directions about how to get to where you want to go. And they will not be correct. But I will be pretty convincing. So I was, when I was younger I lived in New York City and I used to love riding in the train. I'd ride the train from New York City down to Washington, D.C. And I loved, I loved this, and I loved doing it, and, and one of the first few times I was making this trip, I was riding the train and having a great time, and, uh, and we pulled up to a stop in Baltimore, and we were at the station, and, and we were waiting there, and this older couple is walking down the aisle to get off the train, and, uh, and they stop at my seat, and the man leans down, and he says, excuse me, young man, is this the stop for the... Baltimore, Washington International Airport. And I looked right at this man and I said, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Have a nice day. And off they went. And so the train gets going again. And about five minutes later, the train stops at the second stop in Baltimore, which is the Baltimore, Washington International Airport. And the blood drained from my face. And I could not stop thinking about this poor couple who is now wandering around downtown Baltimore, and there's a part of me that still thinks they're there wandering around. I know this is a silly illustration, but I, I in that moment, wanted to be wise. I wanted to know, I wanted to help them, I wanted to be the expert in the situation, but I was a fool. I was foolish, and it cost somebody. What happened there was an example of earthly wisdom. What happened there was a moment of selfish ambition 
that had a negative effect on someone else. What happened there was an unbridled tongue revealing a deeper heart problem, and I'm just talking about giving somebody bad directions. My heart problem and your heart problem is a lot worse than that. We need something greater, more powerful than ourselves to solve this problem, don't we? So how can we tell? In others and in ourselves, how can we tell who is wise? James asks this very question in verse 13 and then gives us tools in the passage to see what true heavenly wisdom is and what it is not. James tells us that we will be able to see it. The wisdom that comes from above as well as the wisdom that comes from below is something we can see. You see, wisdom is not only an intellectual activity. It's not just information that we have in our mind. Wisdom concerns the conduct of our lives. James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now we can infer a few things from that sentence. Wisdom, or the lack thereof, is visible. You can't have wisdom without conduct to confirm its presence. And good conduct here is referring to an observable, consistent pattern of life. And this is worth paying attention to because sometimes we ascribe wisdom to people for the wrong reasons. We see someone who is successful in business and we think that they're wise. We, we read the tweets from a celebrity on Twitter and they sound really cool and so we think that they're wise. We ascribe wisdom to, to leaders who are poised and articulate and we don't know anything else about them but we think they're wise. Sometimes we ascribe wisdom to people without having the slightest idea of what the good conduct or the consistent pattern of their lives looks like. You ought not think a person has wisdom from above if you have never observed humility in that person. James calls it the meekness of wisdom. It's the first answer to his question in verse 13. When true wisdom is grounded in the fear of the Lord, the result is meekness. When measured up against a God who spoke and created the world, who sent the rain to flood the entire earth, who parted the Red Sea, who fed people from Israel with manna from heaven and guided them to the promised land by a, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day, who destroyed wicked cities save one family, but who also, throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, relentlessly pursued his people for himself and never let up on his promises to deliver them. When measured up against a God who would send a world destined for destruction, a Savior who would redeem the world from the guilty sentence it deserved by dying the miserable death of a criminal on a cross, be buried in a cold, dark tomb, and then three days later rise victoriously over that death, over sin, over the grave, issuing us a pardon from our sins forevermore. Wow! 
God, when measured up against that, we have no chance on our own. When we were slave to sin, he rescued us. We did absolutely nothing to earn it or deserve it. And God took the blame. When one stands in the proper awe and respect of God, the result is meekness. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And James goes on, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Envy and selfish ambition can be sneaky. They can, they can creep up on you. They have many faces, and I believe we really need to pay attention to what James is teaching us here. This disposition, this heart state that we have is going to be the one that comes more naturally for us. We are predisposed to these attitudes. And these attitudes are the overflow of our hearts without God, without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, helping us to discern heavenly wisdom from earthly wisdom, Satan will use these things to divide us and to isolate us. What does James say is the result of such attitudes? It's in verse 16. For where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be Disorder and every vile practice, not might, will. Friends, I think as a church, we need to be paying attention to what James is teaching us this morning. And we need to be praying about this as a church. This warning from James comes at a time when our church is preparing to make a big move a big step in the life of our church. And I know that God has been working and directing our leaders in, in the adoption of Crosspoint. There is no other explanation for this than it would be God's will to have this happen in the middle of a pandemic. I have observed our leaders be obedient to that calling, be prayerful and patient in receiving wisdom, and I, I'm excited to see how God will work in our new space, but I want us to take this word from James seriously. I know that many of us have been a part of a church where this type of disorder that James is describing has occurred. When a bunch of sinful people get together, one can expect some trials every now and then. What's important is having a biblical understanding of how to handle these trials when they come up. We can count it as joy, James says, when we meet these trials because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. When the proper amount of godly wisdom is applied in these scenarios, we can take hope. However, when earthly wisdom is applied, we have much about which to be concerned. I'm a theater professor at the University of Sioux Falls, and... Uh, I'm teaching a class this semester called Introduction to Contemporary Drama. Doesn't that sound exciting? And 
In this class, we read several modern plays and we study their significance in our culture and society. And by some divine choreography, the play that we studied just last week ties in perfectly to this passage of Scripture. I even mentioned it in class on Thursday when we were having a class discussion about it, that I might use some of it for today's sermon. The play is called The Christians, and it's the story of a pastor of a really large church who stands up to preach one morning and makes a startling announcement. Without consulting anyone about it, not even his wife, he tells the church that he has reversed his opinion on a fundamental doctrinal issue and that his church will be reversing its, its position on it as well. You can imagine the shock from within the congregation. As the story unfolds, we watch as the church splits, friends become enemies, colleagues become strangers. When there was once trust, there is now suspicion and so on. The discussion was, was lively on the play. And it came up by, by some of the students how selfish it was for the pastor to handle the situation the way that he did, even those students who agreed with the pastor's position. Many in the discussion commented about the influence leaders have, how they can use that influence for selfish gain, and how selfish ambition leads to this type of disorder. Many of the students in the room had personal experiences of this nature. So I can imagine in this fictional story how that congregation first started out. I can picture the young, excited, eager, small group of people I can imagine the enthusiasm as the young church was growing and, and seeing the gospel move and work. And at this moment, I can relate. Because when I look out here, I see that young church. And you know, it didn't reach this level in this fictional story overnight. It crept in and grew. Maybe you've experienced something like this in real life. I hear stories about it a lot. It's tragic how common the, this kind of story is. Stories about how pastors use their influence for selfish gain, church leaders envious of one another and basically warring against one another, church members forming factions and splitting the church. It can happen in a lot of different ways. And here's my point. We would be foolish to think that something like that could never happen to us. The enemy loves nothing more than to be cunning and cause division in this way. To use earthly wisdom and masquerade it as heavenly wisdom is what can ultimately destroy God's church in the moment. James is not overstating it. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. And here's the tough word that I think you and I need to hear. The kingdom of self is always present. The kingdom of self is waiting and it will lure you away from the kingdom of God. God's grace and mercy in our lives is more than just a nice phrase to sound Christian. It's essential. Without it, we can count on the tragic consequences of disorder and every vile practice. 
and I'm not making this stuff up. This is what was happening to the churches that James was writing to. He was specifically writing to, to leaders who had begun to display this very selfishness and envy. They were jealous of, of leaders who, who had it better. They were using their power and influence for selfish gain. And worst of all, they were lying about it. They were boasting about their wisdom and being false to the truth. We'll look at, at their behavior more closely next week, but let's just say for now that in some cases, some of this behavior was leading to violence and even, and even murder. Disorder and every vile practice is the result of pursuing the kingdom of self. My desires, my wants, my preferences, my tastes, my pleasure the way that I want it. Me, 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 me. Yes, the kingdom of self is attractive, my friends. Until you get that thing that you thought you wanted that would complete your kingdom of self. And it totally disappoints. And it lets you down. It does it every time. Every good and perfect gift that God gives us, we can twist and make it fit in our kingdom of self. How does this play out for you? Do you hear this and feel the weight of it? Do you recognize yourself in it, or do you still think that James is talking about somebody else? If you and I don't see the sin in ourselves and recognize our propensity for it, our propensity toward envy and selfish ambition, then James is showing us today what we can expect. I don't like thinking about that outcome. I hope you don't either. Turns out we're not so different than these first century Christians, are we? I've been speaking this morning primarily to believers that are here. But if you're here this morning and you, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're here in this room or, or with us online, wherever you might be, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'm, I'm really glad you're here for this important conversation because I want you to know that everyone in the room right now who follows Jesus at one time was where you are. Everyone who has ever followed Jesus was called out of darkness into God's glorious light. Even James. Even James, who wrote this letter. The half-brother of Jesus did not believe. You can check it out. It's in the book of John. One tiny little verse. John tells us in chapter 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed him. James, too, was called out of the world to be a follower of Christ. So he's writing these things not as someone who knows nothing about what he is saying, but as someone who has experienced the saving, transforming grace of a Savior and who also happened to be his half-brother. So what do we do? Knowing that our dispositions are such that we are prone to envy and selfish ambition, that humility and meekness does not come naturally to us, what can we do? And I'm so grateful in this moment right now that I don't have to end the sermon here. God does not leave us with this despair. We need to see our sin. We need to be aware of it so that we know how to repent, how to pray against it, so we know our need for grace and mercy, which God through Jesus Christ has given to us for all time. And do you remember that in chapter 1, James has already given us the answer? 
tucked away in one verse in chapter 1, which is meant to color and, and lace everything else that we study in James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach. It means without blame. And it will be given him. If you're lacking wisdom in any of these areas, anything from the last several weeks in this book, ask God for wisdom in them and he will give it to you. It's plain as day. Did you do that this week? Did you pray for that this week? God wants to provide it for you. You know, I spent a great deal of time thinking and researching and reading and listening to different resources preparing for this sermon, so nothing that I'm telling you is anything original. I realized I was staring at a blank screen that I really needed more wisdom about it, so I texted my, my father-in-law and I said, I'm praying for wisdom because I am coming up dry. And my father-in-law replied, that's good. If you don't have anything, then what God gives you won't be contaminated. Amen. <laughs> I pray that's true. But you need to know that this sermon is really just me preaching the sermon that I need to hear. I'm just saying it out loud for you to hear too. If you want to flip to Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, we can take a look at just one example of Old Testament, Old Testament wisdom literature. James drew a lot of what he was saying from, from the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and so the people that he was writing to would have been really familiar with this. And so it's Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read it too. Listen to these words. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. We can call upon God for this. Did you see it? What, what are the requirements for receiving God's abundant wisdom? Hearing and receiving the word treasuring them up, being attentive, turning your heart toward him, calling out to him, raising your voice to him, seeking him, and you will understand the fear of the Lord. And that's the beginning of wisdom. Ask for it, seek him for it, and he'll give it to you. So now that we know what earthly wisdom looks like, how to be watchful for it, what does heavenly wisdom look like? Well, in a, in a word, it looks like Jesus. James tells us that true wisdom, spirit-given wisdom, finds its origin in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of self. It's characterized by both internal and external fruits. 
internally, godly wisdom is pure and it is sincere, James says. Pure in that it is fundamentally motivated not by sin, but by goodness and holiness. It is unstained, sincere in that it is an expression of a heart redirected by God. Purity and sincerity of heart are conditions that only Jesus can change. Listen to what Oswald Chambers wrote about purity in in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Your motives must be so pure that God Almighty can see nothing to rebuke. Who can stand in the eternal light of God and have nothing for Him to rebuke? Only the Son of God and Jesus Christ claims that through his, redemptive, through his redemption, excuse me, he can place within anyone his own nature and make that person as pure and simple as a child. The purity that God demands is impossible unless we can be remade within. And that is exactly what Jesus has undertaken to do through his redemptive work on the cross. The Greek word from which sincere is derived is enipokritos. It most literally translates as not playing a part. Not playing a part. The person characterized by God's wisdom is transparent, trustworthy, stable. The kind of person consistently displaying the virtues of wisdom and on whom one can rely for advice and counsel. Does that characterize you? Sandwiched between these internal evidences of wisdom from above are five external observable attributes. First, godly wisdom is peaceable. Whereas earthly wisdom produces strife and sets people apart from one another, God's wisdom leads to harmony. Those possessed of it start to love peace more than selfish ambition. There is consideration of others where there was once envy. The purity and peaceableness of God's wisdom therefore shows itself relationally. Next, godly wisdom is gentle. You know who else was gentle? Jesus. He says it himself in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The gentle person, however, can still be assertive, Jesus was that way too. He wasn't very gentle all the time as we think of it, especially during this event in Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He also had some things to say to the scribes and Pharisees, didn't he? He called them hypocrites, snakes, sons of hell, among other things. I don't think anybody went home that day and said, oh, Jesus meek and mild stopped by the temple today. 
He, he might have been a little upset, but I couldn't tell. He just kind of <laughs> gently tipped over the table. We can be strong and assertive, yet gentle if we call upon the gentle wisdom of God to help us not assert ourselves into it, but to promote the cause of God by speaking up for the needy, the poor, the powerless. Jesus was forceful, even confrontational sometimes, never for his own gain, but in every way was proclaiming something true about God the Father. Godly wisdom is open to reason. James taught us about this back in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Have you ever been in a situation where you just can't wait to get your thoughts out? You believe something so strongly that you can't wait to interject and get that thought in there. You're so ready to verbally pounce on someone that you no longer hear a word they say because you're waiting for the moment to interrupt and get your word in. The Greek word James used here is the only time the word appears in the New Testament and it literally translates as easily persuaded. That's not to suggest that a person ought to be weak-minded or, or gullible or, or believe or trust too readily. It means that the reasonable wisdom from God will show deference to other people. Yield to the ideas, opinions, and thoughts of others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved. That's an important distinction. Sometimes it's important to be right. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's important and righteous to be angry. Sometimes it's not. The reasonable wisdom of God will help us know the difference. Godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. James reminds us in chapter 2 that mercy triumphs over judgment. God's wisdom is quick to show mercy. I've been driving for lots of years now. got my driver's license when I was 16. I almost didn't get my driver's license because... When I took my driving test, I drove on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> True story. So maybe I shouldn't be driving. Uh, I've been pulled over about eight or nine times in my life, and I have never once received a speeding ticket. My wife is so irritated about this. The most recent one was a couple weeks ago in Brookings. I was, for those of you that are familiar with, with Brookings, right off the interstate, there's this like main road in Brookings, and it's got lots of lanes. It just feels like an expressway. You should be able to just fly down this road. And the locals know. They warn you. They're nice. They warn you. They say, that's 35 miles per hour, son. You better drive the speed limit. And I say, okay. Well, I was there, and I just forgot. It's an expressway. <laughs> so I don't know how fast I was going, but I, the lights turned on behind me, and I was like, no the streak is over. And so the officer comes up to the window, and I give him all the stuff. I do nothing. I don't, like, make an excuse. I just give him all the stuff. And he goes back to his car, and he comes back, and he, and he gives me a warning. Listen, I did nothing to deserve this, okay? I was unequivocally speeding. I was absolutely speeding. He had proof. I don't know. 
He just gave me a warning, and, and that's how it's worked out for me in the law so far. <laughs> Mercy has triumphed over judgment. <laughs> the thing about Jesus and the law is that's how it works out for you and me every single time. Mercy triumphs over judgment every single time. We broke the law, and when the law came for us, he stood in the way and he took the penalty in our place. We did nothing to deserve it. That's what mercy looks like. And that's what the Spirit of God stirs up in us in order for us to be more like Jesus. Matthew chapter, seven, chapter 5, verse 7 reads, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Paul Tripp says in his book, New Morning Mercies, one of the stunning realities of the Christian life is that in a world where everything is in some state of decay, God's mercies never grow old. They never run out. They're, they're never ill-timed. They never dry up. They never grow weak. They never get weary. They never fail to meet the need. They never disappoint. They never, ever fail because they really are new every single morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3.22 Godly wisdom is merciful, and that mercy that we receive translates into good fruit. The overflow of that mercy we receive from God is evidenced by the good fruit it produces. I heard a brother of mine this week talk about God's mercy in his life, evidenced by a change in his language. That's God's mercy overflowing in a practical way that we get to see. Praise God for the ways in which he lets us see these things. And lastly, God's wisdom is impartial. Pastor Jonathan walked us through this a couple of weeks ago more in depth, and I encourage you to listen to that if you didn't get a chance to hear it. But this word translates as not being divisive or displaying a non-judgmental non attitude. But it also translates as unwavering or not being uncertain. The unwavering quality of actions indicates a purity or sincerity of heart characteristic of a person with integrity whose actions match their words. And what are the promises or the promise that we are left, through, left with at the end here? And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, the behavior produced by heavenly wisdom invests itself in such a way that it leads to further fruit. This happens both individually and corporately. Individually, as we live our lives in light of the wisdom that God freely and graciously gives us, we become more and more like Jesus. Receiving God's wisdom is an act of sanctification. Through this work of the Holy Spirit, we are more able to lead a life with good conduct showing our works in the meekness of wisdom, which includes the behavior and the words we use that are born out of our hearts. Now, corporately, the, this harvest of righteousness is visible in the ways we relate to one another and how we will enjoy the wisdom of God 
in the life of our church. And I look out this morning and I, and I see not only the church we are now, but the church that we are becoming In the, in the theater, in a lot of my classes, I, we sit in a circle so that we can see one another. I was really tempted to do that right now, but that would be a logistical nightmare. <laughs> but I look out now, and I marvel, and I'm humbled, and I'm grateful for the ways in which God has given me a front row seat to his grace and mercy in your life. We got to see some of it this morning. And I think of the ways that God has been so gracious and merciful to me. And a couple weeks ago, I was sitting back there in one of those back rows, and I snapped a picture of all the toddlers just running around. <laughs> it's awesome. And, I'm, and I look at them, and I'm like, man, there's our youth group. There's our college ministry. And God gives us a front row seat with one another to see all of it unfold. Will we seek after the wisdom that God gives in the way that James admonishes us to do? And he really is admonishing us to earnestly pay attention to this, to acknowledge and repent of the sin that so easily enslaves us to call upon him for wisdom and receive the fruit that only he can give us through Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Don't you desire to be a church marked by these virtues? Aren't you excited to see the harvest of righteousness sown in the years to come by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through each of us that make up this body? Will you pray with me that we would resist envy and selfish ambition? Let's be a church committed to celebrating each year, marveling at God's grace and mercy, grateful for the wisdom that he gives us, because that is exactly what God is delighted to provide for his children. Let's pray. God, thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you've actually given us the gift of each other. You've given us a front row seat to watch the ways in which you work, the ways in which you provide everything that we need, the ways in which you offer everything to us to have wisdom, to see it, to experience it, so much so that it affects the conduct of our lives. May that wisdom, may that, may that characterize us in such a way that it looks so attractive to the unbeliever that they have to come and find out who you are and what it is you've done. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've made a way for us to be together, both here in this room and online. And Father, may we turn our hearts now to worship you and thank you that this is true. Amen.